Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. I hope all of you have had a good um, week so far. Uh, there's a lot been going on uh, since last week. Um, I don't want to get into all of it because it's not um, an appropriate um, place nor setting to be doing so. But one thing we can certainly hope is that uh, within a week from tomorrow that um, when um, our nation, being the United States, um, does have um, its new president be sworn in, that everything is uh, safe and sound. Uh, the last thing um, this great nation doesn't need is um, further turmoil compared to what uh, took place um, a week ago um, uh, come uh, tomorrow. But anyways, uh, we are uh, focusing on what is uh, relevant, and that is... um, Dan, uh, Peter L. Bernstein's uh, Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation. So we're now on to part two of, uh, Ber- of Peter Bernstein's book, and it and part two is titled The Action Begins. Now, from the last time I was on the air with you all, I remember mentioning briefly about the new um, part or let alone segment of this uh, book being The Action Begins, and Even that phrase alone can be vague. How so? Well, it can mean a variety of things. In other words, when one says the action begins, does that mean that the actual project of building the canal takes place? Or does it mean that there's going to be uh, actual debate on the floor of Congress as to whether or not any motions to go forward with um, further debate in constructing a, a major inland waterway project actually takes place. So th- to me, those are how those examples can be best um, characterized for the phrase, the action begins. But we'll find out um, here shortly how um, this particular part, being part two of how the, a- the action begins, um, can be best uh, interpreted. So our leadoff bonus question is the following. Which famous forefather would become our nation's third president? Well, this uh, famous forefather of ours became our nation's third president um, by winning the election of 1800, which um, marked the shift from one party to another in office. That uh, person's name is Thomas Jefferson, he would be the first, um, the first, uh, what do you call it, anti-federalist or first um, Democratic Republican or Jeffersonian Republican to be elected uh, president of the United States. George Washington and John Adams were Federalists, and they were the only two presidents we had who were Federalists. But Thomas Jefferson becomes our nation's third president, from, and he serves um, in the White House from 1801 to 1809. Jefferson's uh, presidency is uh, is an interesting one. Um, it is marred with uh, success, but it's also marred with um, with um, misfortune. Um, you know, I don't think any presidency has uh, been immune from um, misfortunes. The only one I could think of, and not to get far ahead of the game, but it might be safe to say in terms of our early republic's history, might be by the time James Monroe uh, becomes president when we have what's called the era of good feelings. And I should probably save um, more information about that at another time because 
the era of good feelings does pertain to the time when the Erie Canal itself will actually get physically constructed. So I will save that part for another uh, time uh, in this um, book discussion. But when I think of successes that Thomas Jefferson has in his presidency, the big one uh, in my mind comes to the Louisiana Purchase, which basically doubles the size of our nation uh, as a whole, uh, thanks to that Lewis and Clark expedition. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, about that uh, later on in this uh, particular uh, podcast episode. But the bottom line is, is that uh, Thomas Jefferson becomes our nation's third president by serving in the White House uh, from 1801 to 1809. So by March of 1805, and I, and I think it's safe to point out that by the time Jefferson becomes president, the nation's economy as a whole is much better than it was when our nation's republic first uh, got started. But we also have to keep in mind, too, this, that progress and even economic prosperity and success just doesn't happen overnight. It does take time. So as for by the time Thomas Jefferson begins his second term in March of 1805, the U.S. population had grown from 3.9 million in 1790 to 6.3 million by 1805. That's an annual growth rate of 3.2%. Wow. So, and plus two, um, I can say that we've we've gone from 13 colonies or states, let alone, and we've also seen an expansion with our nation, not just with the Louisiana Purchase, but we've seen some states get added as well. And I'll get to that part here uh, shortly. But also in 1805, Merchandise exports went over a hundred million, and remember, folks, when we're exporting goods, we're shipping them out from the United States to foreign markets like England and France. Imports continued to increase, and from 1803 to 1807, nearly 80 patents got issued for new inventions, being four times the rate from 1790 to 1794. So. The U.S. economy under Thomas Jefferson is really on a roll, and we would certainly hope that it would stay that way. One never knows when the economy can can um, all of a sudden take a um, a bust, and then once it takes a bust or a nosedive, the bigger question is how soon can it recover? Well. Jefferson himself knows that government is in better shape revenue-wise compared to the first years of the Republic's existence. And based off of the numbers I gave you all um, a moment ago, uh, that would be a good indication. But in the years between 1806 and 1807, he will address to Congress the need for using surplus money on internal improvements. Now, let me, all, let me ask you guys this. Internal improvements, are they... Um, what do you call it, projects that are from within um, within our own country. Yes, but those internal improvements can take place in any part of our country. And internal improvements are big and small, but when I think of those um, internal improvements, I think of building bridges, um, building better roads, and even in this case, based off of what we're talking about, 
being the Erie, the Erie Canal and the making of a great nation? How about building something grander? Why not, the, why not a canal that would one day become the Erie Canal? Yes, Thomas Jefferson does address to Congress the need for using surplus money on these internal improvements, but he fails to specify exactly where the money itself ought to be spent and what projects were to come first above others. This is a good classic example right here of where you know politicians can talk a good talk. They could say, yes, I'm all for these projects. Uh, I'm all for, for improving the bridges. I'm all for improving our infrastructure. And then all of a sudden, uh, nothing gets done, and then the voters are left to wonder, hey, why did we elect this person? You know, they, they made a promise, but they failed to deliver on it. So we'll find out here over time whether or not Jefferson's actions will go through or if what he says is one thing and in the end it's the opposite. And as that old saying goes, there's always the potential for something to backfire. Now, what I find interesting with Jefferson, as I said earlier, that when he's president, um, number one, we have the Louisiana Purchase, which doubles the size of the United States um, territory. But even before he is president, especially when George Washington is president, that's when more states get added to the Union. And under George Washington, there were um, three states that were added to um I know uh, Kentucky and Tennessee were added to the Union when George Washington was president, and then Vermont came later. Then by the time, uh, being the same year uh, that the Lewis and Clark expedition takes place, being the, um, the Louisiana Purchase um, Movement, in 1803, Ohio becomes the 17th state. And as I've said in many podcasts, not just in this one, but, but per other uh, topic discussions, that Ohio was once part of Virginia. And what do you know? In 1803, Ohio earns uh, statehood into the Union. So, and along with you know Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Virginia has lost uh, some of her uh, territory holdings. But yet, she is still pretty big when you consider that uh, West Virginia is, at that time, is still considered to be Virginia. You also have to consider that maybe Indiana and Illinois are still part of Virginia by 1803. Now, here's a question for you all. Were politicians divided over the federal government's power regarding internal improvement projects? Yes. And I could see how politicians at this day and time would have been uh, divided. And it could have been along... Um, sectional lines north and south but the but here's a, an answer to the uh, question in greater detail besides a yes on the politicians being divided over the government's power regarding internal improvement projects a consensus was reached or let alone um, some form of compromise where the Senate re where the Senate was able to um, require the Treasury Secretary to prepare plans that would ensure government didn't overstep any boundaries in terms of powers that the government itself was given and 
with and also in regards to powers that were not specifically written in the Constitution or let alone implied for the federal government itself to have. For those of you who are wondering, you know, isn't it fair to say that the federal government, while yes, it should have its fair share of powers, but at the same time, it, shouldn't it also have, um, a, have a limit to a certain degree as to what it can and cannot do? Sure. But that's a whole other topic for another um, time. Uh, but nonetheless, the Senate did reach a consensus where the Treasury Secretary would have to be required to prepare plans uh, for anything big and small project-wise being an internal improvement matter that, um, that would ensure that government itself did not overstep its boundaries. And something else I didn't know, and I'm glad in large part through rereading what's been appropriate and necessary, was that prior to 1861... And I know it sounds crazy for me to uh, to leap so far ahead, being here we are in the early 19th century, but here we are well past the midpoint of the 19th century, but not for long. But prior to 1861, before the Civil War broke out, the federal government's revenue was based upon tariffs imposed on foreign goods collected at places like ports. The first income tax itself would not be enacted in until the time of the Civil War. So many of you all are wondering, okay, how is the government getting uh, revenue? Well, we are um, the, the government's revenue is based upon tariffs, which are duties that are levied on foreign goods. So we have to remember, in the early years of our nation's republic, and it was this way up until 1913 when... Um, the, the federal government finally enacted an amendment basically stating, uh, being the 17th Amendment, stating that, um, that finally the government has the power to levy an income tax. So <laughs> think about this. You know, we, went, we have all other kinds of taxes leading up to uh, this one, but there was no um, income tax. So in case many of you all are wondering, how is it safe to say that the government the government's uh, raising, um, what do you call it, or imposing um, duties on foreign goods where money is collected at the ports. I mean, that really was our primary source of um, obtaining revenue in order for the government to operate. Now, I mentioned earlier about uh, the Treasury Secretary being required to prepare plans to ensure that the government didn't overstep any boundaries in terms of powers given and not given. So, who is the Treasury Secretary to Thomas Jefferson? Many of you all probably don't know his name, and that's okay, but I'm here to tell you all. His name is Albert Gallatin. Albert Gallatin's a very unique uh, individual. I can tell you this much. He is from uh, Switzerland, um, and so he was. And he came to um, the United States bef right before he turned um, twenty years of age. And what's interesting, real quick, about Switzerland, and um, and I know this because my wife and I have some good friends of ours, um, and he is originally from Switzerland, and he told me once that Switzerland is comprised of. Uh, three, um, what do you call it, um, nations in one country where people either speak Italian, French, or German. Well, our friend, uh, given that he was originally from, that he's originally from Switzerland, he spoke um, more fluent German. But 
Albert Gallatin, um, being that he was from Switzerland, uh, per Peter L. Bernstein, he was uh, he was of a French um, speaking um, person. So uh, Gallatin um, would be the first to propose a law requiring the Treasury Secretary to submit a report of his department to Congress, as well as contributing to the establishment behind the House and the House Ways and Means Committee. That's a very, very powerful, um, what do you call it, uh, committee to serve on in Congress. And this uh, committee um, ensures that both Treasury and Congress are working together. I don't know how well that is in today's modern world, but that's a whole other topic for <laughs> for something else. But that's, that's, what, it, that's what its uh, main purpose was. And uh, I also found it interesting that Gallatin himself, yes, uh, would serve in the House of Representatives. He even taught French at a, a very prestigious Ivy League school that was hap that happened to be one of the first um, collegiate institutions of higher learning in uh, what was then colonial American uh, days, and it still is today. But he taught French at Harvard. And many of you all have heard me probably say before, Harvard, but not Harvard, because uh, up in New England... They don't say Harvard, they say Harvard. So the bottom line is, even if you're not from New England, make sure to develop that accent right away. So this way, when you're visiting, uh, you'll uh, be accepted. Matter of fact, um, Harvard was where Mr. John Adams went to school. What did Albert Gallatin know about advanced transportation improvements? Sounds like he probably knows a little bit more than Thomas Jefferson. Well, for starters, he knew better transportation conditions meant potential increase in national income along with wealth. That's a, that's a given right there. But secondly, a better transportation system meant that goods that were once excluded before could now have better opportunities in reaching new markets. So in other words... If we construct a canal system that's going to link the Atlantic Ocean into the up through the Hudson River into the Mohawk River Valley, all the way through um, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and into what we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, the bottom line is is that um, if we have this better transportation system, goods that only went as far as to the ports of the Atlantic Ocean, port cities of the Atlantic Ocean, are now going to have a better means of getting to newer destinations further inland. So Gallatin is smart to realize that, hey, look, if we want to have a better market, we've got to have better inland waterway systems. We can't just rely on um, port cities alone to generate all the revenue. Gallatin himself knew that the U.S. as one nation had to come together for ensuring roadways and canals long-term successes by establishing connections over long distances, as I mentioned a moment ago. In some ways, Albert Gallatin reminds me of George Washington. You know, from the previous podcast, you know, Washington was infatuated with advanced improvements in transportation, but he was infatuated in large part because he knew that in order for the for this young nation being the new United States to be a successful country, 
you were going to have to expand your transportation system. You can no, no longer rely on shady or, or on what do you call it, shoddy roads. Um, what do you call it? Uh, goods, uh, just getting to the port city, and that was it. I mean, there has to be better means of transportation if you're going to not only expand your population, but ex but develop um, markets that can reach um, new venues. So here's another bonus question for you all. What weaknesses does Gallatin himself see behind a lack of broad national support for canals? You know, here's the issue right here, and, it, and I will probably mention it again in other podcast episodes regarding this topic, but it is fair to say that even in the early years of the 19th century, many Americans the thought of a canal is still a very foreign uh, concept. It's like I said from a previous podcast that uh, constructing a canal linking the Atlantic Ocean to any major rivers as well as Great Lakes, it's like the equivalent of, of putting a man on the moon. But, you know, for Albert Gallatin, the, one of the problems he sees is that too much money has already been placed into the hands of private investors, and in some cases, local governments. As for the money and the resources, they weren't evenly distributed to where everyone could be on the same page with proceeding in the proper direction. Well, there you have it. It's one thing to have private investors or a private uh, company um, lead the way in a project, but if you don't have the community as a whole, then how can everyone benefit from it? How can the vast majority of the American people find it to be relevant? For Gallatin, a strong national transportation network had potential to grow people's interest from every region of the United States. And I would agree with that. Okay, let's say you know we do construct this Erie Canal. From a Southerner's perspective, I'm sure that people in South Carolina and Georgia are already saying to themselves, how, are, how in the world are we going to benefit from something that's miles away from us, and it's, all, and it's going to go into um, uncharted territory where not only will those goods go, but immigrants will start a new life, but they won't have anything to offer us. Here we are, a plantation agrarian-style economy, We've still got it pretty good. And if you like the way your system is, that's great. But this is a big divide between North and South over, um, over how to uh, grow your economy. But as for um, Albert Gallatin, he, I do have to agree with him that if people do come together to support a strong national transportation network, that each region of the United States does have the potential to... Um, reap the uh, positive rewards, no matter how big or small those rewards can become, the bottom line is everyone's got the potential to live up to something to live up to live up to something that's um, that's major. Okay, whom does Albert Gallatin, our next question here, whom will Mr. Gallatin turn to for support behind canal building in America? His name is Robert Fulton. I've heard of his name on many of occasions, and there are a fair number of counties in, 
in this country that are named in his honor. There's one in New York State, uh, Fulton County, which is not far from um, Syracuse. It's uh, closer to, on, uh, to Oneida County, because uh, I know Syracuse is in Onondaga. But uh, Robert Fulton is most widely known for having, well, I guess the next bonus question I should tell you is this. What is Mr. Robert Fulton most widely known for having developed? A commercial steamboat that became known as the Clermont, which traveled in 1807 along the Hudson River with passengers from New York City to Albany round trip. And this would bring major change in river traffic and trade along, the, along key American rivers. So here we are, even before the canal itself gets constructed, Robert Fulton is making a name for himself. You know, we should keep in mind that while, yes, this canal will get built one day, it's, it's going to take time, and we're already seeing it already. I mean, we're still in the surveying process. We're still in the debates. We still have commissions, you know, doing studies. You know, things don't automatically happen overnight, but if you have the right people at the right time, and if they stick together over time, then yes, good things will come. But it doesn't necessarily have to be confined to just one thing, being that canal. In this case, look at Robert Fulton. He's um, developed a commercial steamboat that's obviously been able to successfully transport passengers um, from New York City to Albany, um, round trip. Um, you know, that's a big first step right there. So uh, Fulton himself became interested with canals in the early 1790s. Because I'm sure many of you all are wondering, okay, when does this guy really start taking an interest in canals? Well, as I said a moment ago, it's in the early 1790s. But by 1796, he publishes a book on small canals, which got George Washington's attention. And what do you know? Even in 1796, George Washington himself is still our nation's president, but hey, I know George Washington um, appreciates anybody taking an interest in canals because Washington, as I said earlier and from the previous podcast, Washington laid the groundwork for our nation in terms of try in terms of becoming a better self-sufficient um, country when it comes to better transportation. That is not just relying so much from goods coming overseas to the ports, but extending them from the port cities like Philadelphia, well, well, I mean major port cities in this case like New York City, all the way further inland into New York State where we go to like Albany, Syracuse, all the way to Buffalo and Rochester. Now, Robert Fulton knew that uh, canals alone could transport goods to marketplaces at lower rates versus transporting them by, the ro by road. Fulton was the first to calculate, or let alone, I should say, estimate the total costs of canal expenses per day, ranging from man, boy, canal boat, horses, to tolls. So... I want to share with you all this here, a, a breakdown scenario of how Robert Fulton himself was able to uh, 
to determine the difference in, in a save, what, what, what was his savings plan version of his time in terms of how money could be saved by going um, canal waterway versus by road. And what do you know? I'm in the, I work in the trucking industry, and um, I've been um, in transportation for, for 13 and a half years, and in the last year and a half, or let alone I should say two and a half years, I've been working as a solution center service representative. So I handle um, guaranteed shipments, whether it's working up rates for, um, for uh, shipments moving on the standard one to two day transits, or if it means working an upgrade to get a standard LTL shipment being less than truckload upgraded to time critical to determining how much linear footage a um, volume shipment will um, will uh, take up on a trailer. So when I read over these uh, figures that Mr. Fulton himself uh, determined, it really says a lot about just how um, strong of a visionary um, leader he was for his time, not just so much for advocating canals, but what the canal system itself could save money-wise, um, not just saving money, but how the rewards long-term had far more greater advantage than, say, moving goods by road. So here we go. A canal, let's just say this for example, this is what Mr. Fulton came up with. You have a canal boat that moves 25 tons of cargo 20 miles a day. Now remember this folks, 2,000 um, pounds is the equivalent to one ton. So if you have 25 tons of cargo moving at 20, 20 miles a day, we'll do the math right here. 25 times 2,000, that's 50,000 pounds worth of cargo moving a day. 20 miles doesn't seem like a lot, but I will tell you this much right now. If you move um, on boat, 20, that is 20 miles a day, I think it's fair to say you could get to your destination a lot faster than by road. Okay, that's just the first part of it. The man and a boy along with a horse. That cost, that total cost being per day will cost $2.50. As for the tolls, and we're not talking about tolls that you see on the highways in today's time in, in today's world, but the tolls, for example, were the canal maintenance figure purposes being the tolls at the locks to the aqueducts so that might have been their version of what you call the road tolls that we see today that's two dollars per day and for the condition of your boat that's going to be about 50 cents interest so what is this total up to folks based off of the figures i just mentioned above that cost is five dollars a day for moving 25 tons of cargo being 20 miles a day and that's the equivalent of being 20 cents a ton or a dollar a ton for a hundred miles. Let's find out what this would equate to by road. If this if if this was going by road over the same distance in Fulton per what Robert Fulton determined the cost would be ten dollars a ton and this would involve up to five horses at best who can handle less or close to three tons. 
Remember, folks, 2,000 pounds is a ton. So if you can't get to three tons, let's say you can only do two, that's only 4,000 pounds. If you can get to three tons by horse, by road with five horses, that's 6,000 pounds. So, you know, yes, if you can move the equivalent of four to 6,000 pounds worth of cargo by road, you know, that's good, but can you make the journey, the 20-mile journey in one day time? There's, chances are, you'd be lucky if you got to, if you made it halfway in one day. Moving freight by water, by waterway, or aka canal, cut, cuts down on other horse-related costs. Well, think about this, you know, the horses have to have stables, they have to have, um, they have to have feed, you know, that is like hay, they have to have the whole nine yards, but by moving them on waterway, they don't have to, uh, you don't have to fork out the extra money. So moving goods for a dollar a ton for a hundred miles via canal boat also allows for greater variety and quantity of goods to become accessible to mul multiple marketplaces. So that's an even bigger asset right there. When you can move 25 tons of cargo by boat, it's not all confined to just one kind of cargo or let alone one type of freight. For all we know, they could be shipping five to six different types of freight or more. So, whereas by road, you might be lucky if you could get maybe two different types of cargo at best. But it's probably fair to say by road, it might just be one. So, moving by waterway is definitely a huge step in the right direction when it comes to um, a greater variety and quantity of goods not only just being placed on the boat, but once they get to their um, destination, they'll be able to become accessible to multiple marketplaces, not just within, say, a 50-mile radius of their of final destination, but perhaps going into a different state. In this case, once the canal, the Erie Canal will get constructed, it will make its way um, not, pat, not only just through Buffalo, New York, being the furthest western point, but it will make its way into uh, Ohio. Bonus question time here. Were New Yorkers more vocal versus Thomas Jefferson on internal improvement projects? Yes. You know, as much as I, you know, Thomas Jefferson's one of my favorite Virginians, but I also have to be reminded that uh, while, yes, he was a, a remarkable man for his time, um, being president, while yes, um, he did achieve um, some unique things, there were also um, some moments in his presidency where um, pieces of legislation um, did um, define him, but not always for the right reasons. And I will talk about one particular piece of legislation towards the very end. But I think it is fair to, also fair to point out that Jefferson's uh, governing principles are one, especially one where um, it's small government. In other words, the federal government should not be so expansive and so broad to where um, the states don't have many rights. Uh, Jefferson believes that, um, that the government should be one that's based on agricultural purposes only. Of course, Alexander Hamilton's already uh, dis 
He will pass away in 1804 um, in that famous duel between him and uh, Aaron Burr. But the reason I mention Hamilton's name is because uh, he always believed that the wealthy and the well-educated were more equipped to run the government. And also, he believed in a very broad, um, strong central uh, government. Now, which New York State leaders began to further push for Congress to go forward in supporting the Erie Canal Project? There were a handful of uh, men um, who went forward. They ranged from Joshua Foreman to James Geddes, Simeon DeWitt to Joseph Ellicott. And there is a place I should point out in New York State uh, called Ellicottville, which is named after Joseph Ellicott. He was a um, a well-known uh, surveyor, um, and he was even um, an architect, I believe. I do know that um, Joseph Ellicott and uh, Frederick Law Olmsted were the, the two um, key figures behind um, planning the city of Buffalo. Ellicottville is uh, right is located on the outskirts of uh, Buffalo, in case any of you all were wondering where that was in New York State. James Geddes, um, I found him to be very um, interesting. He was a uh, well-known engineer and surveyor who would become a leading figure behind the salt industry development at Onondaga Lake near Syracuse. He worked under state surveyor um, General Simeon DeWitt whom appointed um, Mr. Geddes to study the area between the Mohawk River and Lake Ontario, including Niagara Falls. The terrain around this area was comprised of no mountains, including no large rivers to cross. And that's probably a good thing because, you know, the Mohawk uh, Valley, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, was the only river that proved to be successful in um, being able to... uh, cut through um, to where um, the waters itself would uh, prove that when the canal got constructed that it would be able to um, move westward without any, um, what do you call it, uh, separation uh, flow having to go in a, a different direction. But as for Mr. Geddes, he really strikes it big by exploring the lands east of Rochester in what's now Palmyra and Arondequoit. He invested a sum of just $73, which you know doesn't seem like a lot, but in the early 19th century, that was a lot of money to uh, spend on just about anything. But for $73, he was able to determine through a surveying project that the Genesee River was well above the heights on both sides of the Irondequoit Valley to where water supply was doable for carrying the canal between the hills. Now, prior to this time, many people were convinced that um, that the Genesee River simply was just not suited for, um, for canal um, project, or let alone to even um, have any kind of um, potential. And what do you know? Mr. Geddes proves them wrong. Geddes's findings would allow Simeon DeWitt to investigate further into the canal um, extending from the Genesee all the way to Lake Erie. So here, here's Mr. DeWitt who sends uh, Geddes to do one thing, and Geddes strikes gold. And because of that, now Mr. DeWitt um, can, uh, can per- pursue his own uh, venture. Now, um, 
you know, as I mentioned earlier about Albert Gallatin, you know, he was very, uh, he was a big uh, advocate behind uh, the idea of wanting to get um, canals, um, not just canals built, but to expand inland waterway navigational system routes in the United States. Gallatin, though, had proposed two separate canals. But my question is, how can you propose two separate canals and ensure that there's still going to be um, a success? Most, most, if not all, New Yorkers don't want two separate canals. They want one canal being a direct water route from Albany to Buffalo, and the same vice versa. In other words, you want one canal that's going to link, uh, that'll send uh, goods going east to west, not just the goods, but the immigrants. Remember, immigrants will will benefit greatly from the Erie Canal, especially in establishing um, towns and cities, most notably like Buffalo and Rochester, and then in into uh, further westward into what we now know as Ohio and Indiana and Michigan and Illinois. But um, but yes, all New Yorkers pretty much want that one canal route. And can you blame them? No. As I said earlier about how Thomas Jefferson um, talked about using uh, surplus money for internal uh, projects or internal um, improvements, my bonus question to you all is this. Did President Jefferson ever come through with specifying where the surplus money would be spent in regards to internal improvements, a.k.a. public works projects? I'm sorry to tell you all this, uh, but the answer is no. Why not? I'm sure many of you are thinking um, to yourselves, what was wrong with Mr. Jefferson? Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, Joshua Foreman had really done his homework. He was a um, state um, legislative representative who um, represented uh, Syracuse. As a matter of fact, Mr. Foreman um, was one of the... Um, one of the first uh, people to um, settle in what is now present-day Syracuse, New York. He also was a leader behind incorporating the city. But Mr. Foreman um, advocated left and right before the New York State Legislature about the potential that the canal network itself had. Uh, Mr. Foreman even went as far as to um, getting in touch with his uh, local congressman, to arrange a meeting with Thomas Jefferson on how to go about um, we call it on how to go about advancing the uh, proposal that was at stake. So basically, Jefferson didn't take proposals from outsiders like New Yorkers serious enough to where bill amendments, including public debate, never got a chance to take center stage. So had Jefferson read over this information, and said, hey, I want you to go before um, before this uh, committee to discuss your proposal, then yes, we'll definitely consider it. Jefferson, I hate to say this, but Jefferson, as I said earlier, was not a big fan of excessive government spending. His interests lied in farming and agriculture, and while all of that's important, Jefferson I think it's fair to say that Jefferson may have seen this um, canal project as something that only benefited one region of the country and didn't benefit everyone else. But but then again, his Treasury Secretary knew that if everybody participated, it could benefit the whole the whole country, regardless of region. But 
sometimes our our political leaders see things that aren't always for the right reasons. And this is a classic example right here of where building the canal would even uh, involve sectional lines of north and south. But another um, issue that really um, made matters worse was that in 1807, and you have a divided government, and what I mean by a divided government is that, well, yes, Thomas Jefferson is the leader of his own party. His own party is in control of Congress, and that is both houses, but the bottom line is, is that whatever um, legislation gets debated on the floor, it's pretty much a straight-line um, party vote. In other words, all of the Jeffersonian Republicans will be in favor of the legislation that's before them, whereas the Federalists will all vote against it. So we're, we're talking about some extreme uh, sectional issues here, but in 1807, a divided government led by President Jefferson's efforts passed and signed into law the Embargo Act. Well, what is an embargo? Well, an embargo is a restriction. It's it's where you're cutting off trade, for example. You're, um, you're prohibiting any goods from coming into your country, or, and at the same time, you could be prohibiting goods leaving your country. And that also means that if ships have arrived into ports in your country, like say if ships have arrived into the ports of Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City, Boston, Massachusetts, and I could probably name a few others, but let's say you've got ships that have already arrived into those cities, and now all of a sudden you have this um, embargo put into place. Those ships can't unload their freight. The cargo will sit there. And in some cases, you know, those countries perhaps have transported uh, salted pork as a commodity. So in some cases, if you're transporting food from one country to another, that food's going to spoil Jefferson um, Jefferson had, may have had a reason to have signed this embargo, and I can tell you some reasons for it. But leading up to the passage of this law, between the, seven, this, between the duration of the 1790s and into the early 19th century, the Americans were having a very, very hard time on the high seas in terms of uh, navigational safety, and not just we're not just talking about getting steering off course on the waters. We're talking about um, being able to complete voyages safely without any kind of harassment from a foreign country. What two nations right now on the high seas are giving us all kinds of problems? England and France. And, you know, I'm sure most of you all are wondering, hey, I thought France was our um, ally during the American Revolution. Well, they were. But I also have to inform you all this. As time goes along, circumstances change. Yes, the French were our allies in the American Revolution because they wanted to get back at England as a result of the aftermath of the French and Indian War, and they're losing all the uh, of their territory um, that was now in the place of the British hands. But... By the, set, by the time the 1790s come along, our sailors are being impressed. What does impressment mean? Well, long story short, the British were having issues of their own, too, where um, many of the uh, low-class um, 
ranks of uh, sailors were not taking their duties seriously to where, you know, they were flogged, they received other kinds of punishment, but they deserted in droves. They even went over to the American side, where they felt they would be treated better. Well, the British were in desperate need of sailors. They were facing a what you call a recruitment shortage from within their own country. So, when American ships were sailing along the waters of the Atlantic, the British would um, not just harass them, but they would um, stop them on their voyage and would basically allow themselves onto the American ship to conduct searches. Well, <laughs> here's an example of a violation of a search and seizure. Hey, where's the probable cause? If you don't have probable cause, you shouldn't even be on our ship. Well, when you're out on the international waters, it doesn't work that way. Uh, so basically, uh, high-ranking British officers enter the American boats, and they literally start uh, capturing American sailors against their own will and make them fight alongside the Brit with the British, all in the name of trying to fill desperate shortage within the British um, Navy. And it's not just so much that the impressment part, but when Thomas Jefferson signed the embargo, he thought by signing this piece of legislation that it would get the British and the French to stop harassing the, the American uh, ships and the crew people. No, it didn't work that way because the French and the British are already benefiting left and right. It's the Americans that are going to suffer the most. Think about it. Um, if, as I said earlier, importing goods ex and, and, ex and having imports coming in and exporting goods out. Think about all the, the uh, men who work in the, um, along the ports, most notably in New England and most notably in you know, Charleston, South Carolina, Norfolk, Virginia, Wilmington, North Carolina, Savannah, Georgia. Think about all those areas. Think about how many men are employed uh, working along the ports. In New England alone, I think it's fair to say almost close to 10,000 men were out of a job because of Thomas Jefferson signing the embargo. And to make matters worse, uh, many in Congress, especially in New England, who did not like Jefferson, being those of the Federalists, were even willing to go as far as seceding from the Union to form their own confederation of states. So these are very um, difficult and very unpleasant times. What Thomas Jefferson had really hoped for was that, okay, if the British, we've got to stop relying on the British for bringing goods over to us. Maybe if we, maybe if the British get off our backs and we become more self-sufficient and more independent, then we can, um, then we can. Um, we call it um, make products that, in this case, are made in America. Um, we can um, we can transport goods from point A to point B, but we can do it all in the name of not having to rely on um, transporting goods by vessels from uh, from the seas. And this way, we can avoid um, any form of impressment. While all of that is great, what Jefferson didn't realize was that not everyone has access to resources. In other words, 
Some people may have access to unique resources, but not everyone else um, has the access. In other words, not everyone could have an access to a spinning jenny, which is used for uh, making uh, textiles. Not everyone may have access to rope, which uh, in this case, uh, it was a cordage that was used to make um, rope. Um, not everyone, you know, think about it. Not everyone is in that same rank of society. And if you are above someone else, then in terms of, you know, your wealth status, you're going to have more access than someone who's of lower class rank in society. So what Jefferson didn't realize was that while, yes, all of this may have looked great on paper, it would eventually lose its luster when the ports closed and people were out of jobs. And when people realized they didn't have access to the materials that they thought they could have, it, uh, it affects everyone. It's like a big domino effect Effect impacting people from the top all the way to the bottom. So I can tell you this much, that within a two-year span after Jefferson leaves office, then this Embargo Act does get repealed. But it does still, um, it, it's still, there's still a lot of damage to it. You know, the economy just can't rebound overnight. But it is fair to say that those in New York not only were impacted by his Embargo Act, but they were also impacted by how the future of by how the future regarding the Erie Canal uh, mission would um, would take um, place because it's one thing to envision something grand like a canal, but if but if you can't get any support from Congress and let alone your president has signed an embargo, what does that hold for the future for goods coming overseas? Into the, into the port cities, and will they still have the same potential of reaching their um, inland destination points? Lots of um, unknown questions still, but um, when, when I'm back on the air with you all again next, I'm going to be talking about um, DeWitt Clinton, who will um, become not only the governor of New York State, but he is the one that is going to keep the... Um, what do you call it? The light alive, because he is the one. He is the one that really is the ultimate driving force behind um, getting the Erie Canal eventually constructed. But he is also the one who is willing to risk it all. I mean, I've mentioned plenty of other people's names, and they have played a, a big part in terms of supporting this project. But it's going to take someone else with grander vision. So when I'm back on the air again next, I will be discussing with you all about DeWitt Clinton. Thank you, and have a good rest of your um, night, whether you all are um, on night, and whether it's uh, nighttime or daytime where you're all at. I hope you have a, a good rest of your um, good rest of your uh, day and all that. And I uh, look forward to being on the air again here soon. Take care.